Well, this morning we're starting a new series called How to Survive a Shipwreck. Now, I don't know if you've ever been there in life. Uh, Maybe you're there right now this morning, but at a place where you feel like you have failed. Anybody ever been there in life? Like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I am stuck in a terrible way. I can speak to the place where I'm in life, I think at the age of 12, 13, 14, 17, 24. I I I can tell you different seasons of my life when I've had these moments. Like, how am I going to get out of this, this mess that I found myself in? Sometimes it's not this egregious thing, it's just neglect. And all of a sudden you come to a place of, man, I've been living so fast-paced for so long, I've neglected my family greatly. I didn't even recognize it. I didn't even see it. I'm shipwrecking this thing right now. Maybe you're 17 years old and you've just had these decisions you've been making. I mean, you're graduating, things are coming up. It's not a big deal. I'm going to have some fun. And all of a sudden, a relationship, a party, a few things happen and you've shipwrecked your life. Anybody ever been 17 and felt like you've ruined a few things? Raise your hand. And there are some old folks that raise their hands in here today. They remember 17. And uh, what I want to tell you is that there is hope in the moments where we feel like there is no hope. There's, there's help for us. And what we want to do over the next few weeks is help, help you, us as a body, come together in these these really critical moments that we can't afford to shipwreck our life in. 1 Timothy 1.19 says this, holding faith in a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. In context, the Apostle Paul has made, has made a personal plea for Timothy to remember to put a tight grip onto Jesus Christ the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only God who deserves all honor, glory forever and ever. He says, that which had been spoken into Timothy, Paul is writing this to Timothy, he says, that which has been spoken into your life of God's will and his intentions for you concerning the ministry of the gospel to which you have been called, your spiritual leadership, He says, do not neglect it or you will make a shipwreck of your faith. And in the text, it goes on and it says, among whom have shipwrecked their faith are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So I want to be hopeful that we can come out of this, but I also want to be real that some don't. Hymenaeus and Alexander didn't. Guess what? The Apostle Paul, he's not just preaching, he's naming names. Some Sunday I'm going to preach like that, (laughs) but not today, so, uh, right? But let's be honest, not everybody gets out of this thing free and clear, because there's some things we have to do in order to navigate these moments of shipwreck. So we, uh, we all share something in common, although it 
happened. Every one of us in this room shares something in common. Although it happened vastly different for each of us. See, we were young and moldable and began to recognize things. Like crayons and color. Everybody did that in their life? Everybody remember that, right? Crayons and color. My dad doesn't. They hadn't invented crayons yet. And so the difference between dogs and cats, pizza and Brussels sprouts, little by little we grew up recognizing girls aren't boys and boys aren't girls. Life all of a sudden got bigger than pimples, bigger than proms, bigger than ice cream trips, bigger than homework. And we realized that we have one life to live. And we need to make it count. C.T. Studd said this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. See, these moments in life where thoughts hit us like this, maybe it was our grandpa's funeral, our grandma's funeral, when our brother went away to college, where you became an aunt or an uncle, Or maybe it was when you saw the eyes of your child for the first time. These moments are called a kairos moment. These are these divine moments in time where we are struck with a life-altering truth. This life-altering truth is one that will forever shape us or forever nag us in life. It will be the truth that will define success or failure in our own minds It will stick with us. And this truth is, I have one life before an eternal God, and I need to make it count. Whether we like it or not, we all have something in common in this room. Again, we each have one life, one life filled with summers, with falls, with winters, with spring. And I mean that literally, and I mean it figuratively. That we will have times in life where the sun is shining brightly. We will have times in life where things seem to be dimming too quickly and growing cold. We will have times in life where winter lasts a bit longer than we wanted it to, figuratively and literally. (laughs) We'll have sunshine, gray skies, and all the in-between. Our life will have variety, but we will only have one life. And in this one life, if you haven't come to this place, you will. The place where we feel as though we have shipwrecked our lives. Simply, we, we have or are or about to miss it. And over the next four weeks, what we want to do is to walk through a series, again, called How to Survive a Shipwreck. In this series, we're going to step into areas that we cannot afford to not pay attention to because the stakes are too high. I believe this is going to challenge us and equip us to do well in this one shot at life we have together. As we walk through the series, we're going to address spiritual leadership this morning, community, parenting, and marriage. Now, some of you may say, well, I'm not, I'm not a parent. I'm not married. Well, here, notice I said words. I'm going to go back to two words I just said. This is going to challenge us and equip us. Anybody know a son or a daughter in this room? Anybody know anybody who's a son or a daughter, right? 
And so sometimes when we hear messages that don't necessarily apply to us, this place, this space is meant to equip us. So I hope that if at all, if one thing this does is helps you speak truth and life into someone else and we equip you to do that in this room over the next four weeks. So maybe you're single. Maybe you've never been married and you're going to hear a sermon on marriage. Guess what? You're going to hear all the bleeding hearts talking about their bad marriages and you're going to be able to tell them some stuff that the Bible says about marriage when we get to that, okay? And so we want this to challenge us and equip us to help us get through, navigate our life. So without, without a doubt, I believe that every person in this room carries the mantle of leader, whether we like it or not, because if you live your life and others see you, so if you like move in life at all and others see you and you bear the mark of Christian, you bear the mark of Christian, you will model in some form or fashion what it means to look like and live for Jesus. People will define Christianity by looking at your life. You say, Ryan, that's not fair. Well, too bad. Life's not fair. I say that to my kids all the time. You've made judgments about Christianity by watching others, and others will make it about you. I said this to a group of college students sometimes. I wish some of you would stop calling yourselves Christians because you're ruining it for the rest of us. Right? There's this truth that we have to walk cautiously because we're, we're bearing the image We're displaying to the world this wonderful, great God and Savior to them. And so it say this, that that for all of us, we will influence, we will impact others, not, not only in general, but we've all been entrusted at some level, in some place, spiritual leadership if we are in Christ Jesus, especially in our homes, especially in our workplaces, especially and just the everyday places of life. So, this morning, big principle is this of spiritual leadership. I want you to turn to your neighbor. I want to say it. I want you to say it to him today. Life is not about you. Turn to your neighbor. Tell him today. Life is not about you. Man, some, some husbands have been waiting to say this. I just helped you. Some wives, they're like, finally. I got to tell him, life is not about you, buddy. There's a parent that just said it to a kid. They're so happy. 14-year-old life is not about you. You can't do it with a grit in your teeth. That's not Christian. So, right, you got to do it with a smile on your face, even if you don't mean it, right? Like, that's, just kidding. That's bad. Don't ever do that. So, so spiritual leadership, the, the key that unlocks everything is this genuine coming to a place of recognizing that life is not about me. It's kind of a hard truth, isn't it? And it sounds simple. We, we know that, right? Everybody in this room knows life isn't about me. Like, we all live that out every day of our life, don't we? It's actually a profoundly difficult thing because I think what the scripture says is we are bent toward us. We have a desire deeply embedded in us to kind of make everything revolve around us. And the sin nature, what really is the heart of the sin nature is this, is that we are the epicenter of the universe. But when we come to a saving knowledge of our great God and our great Savior, Jesus Christ, we realize, oh, I'm not the center of the universe. But there's a God on high who created me and made me and sent his son to die for me, and he is the center of everything. 
J. Oswald Sanders said this about spiritual leadership. We must aim to put more into life than we take out. Just say that again. I love that quote. We must aim to put more into life than we take out. To put more into life than we take out. And I'd add this, to, to see more into life than we do. Jesus said it like this, that he who has eyes to see and ears to hear that we have spiritual perception, that we actually don't just see what's existing that affects us, but we begin to hear what people are saying, what they're doing, and not just the face value of it, but we see underneath it, that we have eyes to see the depths of the spiritual things that are happening, the depths of what people believe around us, the hopelessness that we might lead them to hope, that we have eyes to see the brokenness and the hurt and the pain around us that we might step in and bear burdens and care for one another in ways in which only the Holy Spirit of God can reveal as he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. So again, this morning we are addressing being shipwrecked in our spiritual leadership in our lives. And so I don't know if you've, you've ever felt like, right, that not me, I'm not a spiritual leader, or not me, I'm not doing well in this. Maybe it's a mom in the room today. And when you look at your kids, you think, I am failing at spiritual leadership with my, my kids, my life. Anybody ever felt like that before? Maybe it's a dad in the room that says, I, I am failing at spiritual leadership in my home, with my family, with my wife, and with my children. I'm being outpaced, I'm being out. I'm being outled, and I, I don't know what to do about it. I guess there's some people that have felt that way in their life in this room. Maybe it's a grandparent and in the room today. You, you don't even know how to spiritually lead your grandchildren and your kids. And maybe you look back, and there's regrets. And there's something, and you just see the spiritual leadership thing, and there's just anxiety that comes with it. Anybody ever felt that way? Yeah. Maybe it's for you as a as a single person in the room today. Maybe you have been given these relationships and entrusted with these networks and you want to be a spiritual leader in them, but you just don't know how or what to do. Maybe it's a student. Maybe you have these friend networks and people and you want to be an influence for your savior. You want to be a spiritual leader, but you just don't know what to do. So you just go with the flow and you let influence come toward you. You don't speak up. You don't say what's needed. See, all of us have this thing with spiritual leadership. We don't quite know what to do with it. So where else would we go but to Jeremiah 45, to a guy named Baruch. So turn with me to Jeremiah 45, 1 through 5. That's where we'll be reading. And um, I said that facetiously because this is not a typical place that you would go for spiritual leadership. There's this random guy that was a scribe. He wrote down all of Jeremiah's thoughts, all that Jeremiah had been given from God to write. Baruch wrote it down. Let's read this little section, five verses that we have on Baruch. So if you'll stand with me this morning in reverence and honor of reading God's word. Jeremiah 45 reads, The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book, at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O 
Baruch. You said, Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. Thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I am breaking down. What I have planted, I am plucking up. That is the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, for behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. Father, would you reveal to us the truths in this text that you have for us, that we might be the men, women, that God, you have called us and asked us to be. For your name and your glory. Lord, use me today, I ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So in this text, there's kind of some peculiar things. So here's one of the peculiar things. So Baruch is the scribe of, of Jeremiah. Now, the issue of this is, is God's going to rebuke Baruch. And so how this is going to go is Jeremiah is going to tell Baruch what to write down about himself. This might have been a bit of an awkward moment for Baruch, right? Hey, just so you know, you need to write this down. But this time it's about you, buddy. So buckle up. Right? And so Jeremiah 1.10, though, to give a little bit of context, Jeremiah 1.10 says this. See, I have set you this day over nations. And this is to Jeremiah, right? This is Jeremiah. This is the whole mission. So Baruch, is his lot in life, is his place in the kingdom, is to come alongside of Jeremiah to be his scribe. The word is to be his amu, I can't say it right, amuensis. There it is. That's the real word, amuensis, right? His scribe, right? He writes. It's his secretary. So, but this is Jeremiah's mission, and this is in Jeremiah 1 where God says, hey, Jeremiah, this is what you're going to do. Now, Jeremiah's mission is pretty tough. Um, Jeremiah's not going to have any fruit. He's not going to have a very good message. Um, His church is going to be very, very small as a preacher of the gospel. Jeremiah 1.10 says, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. Good news, you have favor, Jeremiah. Bad news, I have set you over kingdoms, over nations, over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So what he's saying to Jeremiah in this text is to pluck up. You're going to root up false thinking, and you're going to tell everyone how their thinking is wrong, how they've misappropriated God, and how there is going to be a major cost for them because they've done that. You're going to break down. You're going to tell them this, hey, what you know, it isn't solid. and You think you're super smart, but you're not. It's Jeremiah's message. His message is to destroy and overthrow. So what he's going to say is, hey, the northern kingdom's already been taken. But the kingdom of Judah, southern kingdom, it's about to go down too. And if you don't repent and turn to God, you're going down with it. And the bad news also with that is that most of you aren't going to repent and turn, and most of you are going down. That's Jeremiah's message, right? So praise the Lord. That is not what he told me my ministry would be. I hope that isn't the one that he has given to you because I think it would be a very challenging one. Then he says, but good news is that I'm going to also give you a ministry to build and plant. 
So there will be a remnant. It will be small, but there will be those who turn in humility and contrition. Three, uh, Jeremiah 3, 7 says this. That some will turn with humility and contrition and be faithful to the Lord. Right? This is Jeremiah's message. So Baruch is at this moment where he is going, all right, my life is basically to come alongside of Jeremiah to write down these messages of doom toward the people, and we're going to have very little fruit of it at the end of our life. And so what what does Baruch say? Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with groaning, and I find no rest. See, Baruch, the son of Neriah, served again as Jeremiah's scribe and friend. He worked faithfully alongside of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, again, who wouldn't be listened to. His message was that of destruction and disaster. But through Jeremiah, again, Baruch is confronted. And he's confronted. He's confronted with his heart. He's confronted with what's going on inside of him. Not the smile on his face, but what's going on inside of him. So, again, God reveals inside of his heart. You said, Baruch, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with groaning, and I find no rest. See, Baruch has an issue. And Baruch's issue is he is negative. He is a complainer. He is a woe is me, my life stinks, I am hopeless, negative, poor me, why me, not fair, come on God, get it together kind of guy. Anybody know anybody like that? Complaining, woe is me, my life stinks, this is all hopeless, negative, 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 poor me, why me, not fair, come on God, get it together. We don't know what that's like, do we? Right? we I believe we live in a society that is negative complaining, why me, not fair, get it together, let me tell you about this person, because it's easier to talk about someone else than it is to talk about real things, right? I've done it before, sit around a table with people and say, hey, what's God saying to you? And like crickets. But if I said, hey, what are people saying about Jack? And they're like, oh gosh, let me tell you about Jack. That guy's a moron. He did this and this. His kids, they're a train wreck. It's easy to talk about other people. Why is it so hard to encourage one another? What about that command? Why is it so hard to that bear one another's burdens? Care for each other. What about that command? See, Baruch had this problem with his spiritual leadership. He was doing the task that God had asked him to do, but his heart wasn't there because he was saying, God, woe is me. God, what's going on here? Look at my life. Lord, you've added sorrow to my pain. I'm weary with groaning. I find no rest. I find no purpose find nothing in this see the big response from God this is what God says to Baruch I am doing what I'm doing Baruch and do you seek great things for yourself seek them not see God is about what he is doing not about what you are doing and only when you align yourself with what he is doing will you experience his goodness and grace And be a spiritual leader in your own life. This is not about me and you. This is about a God 
This is about his agenda. This is about you and I aligning ourselves with his agenda, not our own agenda. Aligning ourselves with his plan for this world, not our wants and desires. So in this text, there's some truths that we see. And so if you're following with me on the back of your building, we're going to go really fast through these today. But, but here, here are the truths that we see in this text. One, that God hears our complaints. God hears our complaints. God knows what's going on. I don't know if you knew that about God, but he pretty much knows everything about you that you don't even know about you. God, God hears our complaints and he knows our excuses. He knows our excuses. And he knows where our focus really is. Do you believe that about God today? That he knows you? That he knows your excuses? And he knows your focus? See, this isn't about actually being negative or positive. That's not the message in this. This isn't like, hey, Baruch should have been a little more positive about things. See, his negativity came from self-centeredness. And we will lead no one, especially spiritually, when life is about us. See, it's not about negative or positive. This is about God. And God hears our complaints. Do you believe today that all your negative thoughts, all your woe is me, that God hears them and he knows them? Not only that, but as he rebuked Baruch, is he rebuking you in those today? Rebuking you in that your focus is revealed by your heart. And I know your heart. I know where you stand. So God hears our complaints, but here's good news. God adjusts our perspective. God adjusts our perspective. And this is what he does with Baruch. He doesn't leave him alone. And this is the hope in being shipwrecked. Is that when God sees us in this moment where we've been shipwrecked, he says, hey, listen up. I'm going to adjust how you see things, which is going to adjust how you live. I'm going to adjust how you see things because it's going to adjust how you live your life. So what does he do? Right? He says, Baruch, this isn't about you. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. See, even before this, he says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I am breaking down. What I have planted, I am plucking up. Sounds like Jeremiah 1.10, doesn't it? He says, I told you and Jeremiah what we're going to do. Dude, get on board. I'm not sure he said, dude, that was my inflection, but maybe, right? Get on board, Baruch. Get on board with what I've said, not what you want. Get on board with my mission, with my movement, not your wants, not your desire, not your notoriety. You know, who knows? Maybe Baruch was looking back and he goes, man, I want to be, I want to be Elijah. I want to be Elijah. I want to be the next prophet. I'm putting in my time next to, next to Jeremiah. When am I going to rise up to the top? God says, dude, play your role in my kingdom and get happy with it. Because then he adjusts his perspective even more. He adjusts his perspective because he says, and it goes on, 
You seek great things for yourself, seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh. Again, here's the message. It's tough. They've rebelled and went against God over and over, turned to idols. And God says, if you don't turn, I'm done. I'm done with you. This is their mission to declare this. He says, all this stuff's going down, and it's going to happen in your lifetime, Baruch. But then he says, but I will give you your life as a prize. He says, so good news, Baruch. Be faithful to me, and you get to live. That's your reward, right? Which is a decent reward, right? I, I like that reward. See, he adjusts his perspective. Be faithful to what I've asked of you. Church, do you hear God saying that to you today? I, I just want you to be faithful to what God has asked of you. And I don't believe that typically God asks us necessarily a what should we do, but he typically asks us a who should we minister to. God is in the business of people, not in, like, not in professions, not in tasks. Because God loves people. And so God is asking us to be faithful. Like the mission of Jeremiah was to people to proclaim a message. And so in this, what it's saying, God adjusts our perspective. Stop looking at yourself and start looking at the mission to the people that I've called you to. Church, do we hear this? That God is asking us to be faithful to what we have ahead of us. And what is ahead of us and what is around us is people that God is asking us to be faithful to. Even right now, if I said, put one person in your mind that God is asking you to be faithful to right now that you have not been faithful to, I'm guessing that a a name is coming to your head. So now you have homework, right? Be faithful, like obey that. Like do what God has asked of you, that person. Then third, God blesses our obedience. Again, what does he say? The blessing for you, Baruch, is you get to live. You get to live, and you get to obey me, and I'll add to it, I believe this is kind of embedded in it, that one day forever you get to be with me. This is the big reward. It's not cars, because they go away, they fade. Last I checked, every car I've owned, rusts, right? Every house I've ever been in, lived in, has issues. Anybody have a house that's never had issues, right? Anybody ever ever known of a house that just, like, existed forever? No, nothing in this world lasts. So he's saying is, hey, focus on some things bigger than you, bigger than this life. So within this, there's a commitment, I believe, these commitments of a spiritual leader. These commitments of a spiritual leader is really, we can't think of this more than just outside of the bounds of what our Savior Jesus has asked of us. What Jesus has asked says it multiple times, five times specific. If you were with me at Men's Frat yesterday, sorry, you got a spoiler. It's coming your way again. But Jesus said this five times. Matthew 16, 24, he says, take up your cross. He says, sorry, I said it wrong. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Now in that, he says, this isn't about you. This is about you denying self, taking up cross, coming after me. And so here are the principles, right? Commitments of a spiritual leader. How do we do this? It's a commitment saying that I will have a worthy burden in my life. Now, when we think about a burden, sometimes we think about a burden as a negative thing, something that's loaded on our back. But I believe there's another way to see burden. 
And a burden is something that, that gets us, it gets under our skin. And the things that get under our skin are the things that typically cause us to maybe even say, woe is me. But these things that are more worthy to get under our skin are one that, that in North America, the population is increasingly growing of people that do not know the name of Jesus and who have not been forgiven through his shed blood. Anybody with me that this is a big deal? It's a worthy burden to have my heart break for people that do not know the Savior, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Is it not a tragic thing in our world that there are millions upon millions upon millions of people that don't know Jesus? There are millions and millions and millions of children that do not have a mother and father. There are millions of women being trafficked in our world. There are millions of people that are homeless and without food and hungry. There are hundreds of thousands of injustices and things in which our Savior wants to step into with his compassion and his mercy and his grace while we argue about school boards and church politics, and styles of music while people are going to hell, while children don't have mothers and fathers to hold them, while women are sold because it's, because, quote, it's better to sell a woman than drugs because drugs are gone once you sell them. You can sell a woman many times. Is there not something more worthy of our burdens, church? Anybody with me? Worthy of a burden that is worthy of the burden of our, our God's own heart rather than our wants and our desires. Because most of our burdens, they're just about us. And they're not worthy. We should care. I care about local schools. I care about my community. But I hope my care that people know Jesus is far greater than these temporary things. I hope my care children have mothers and fathers are greater because I think that's a bigger deal. And again, don't hear me saying that caring about things locally is unimportant. Do you, I hope you do not hear me saying that. I will have a worthy burden burden bigger than me, that I take Jesus at his word, that I invest in things like the souls of men in the kingdom of God. Second, that I will take responsibility, that I have been given responsibility in my time, in my life, to be faithful. Only one life will soon be fast. Only what's done for Christ will last. I have responsibility, and my responsibility isn't to be the one who is nagging, who is negative, who is complaining. My responsibility is to take those in which God has given to me and run with my Savior in the power of the Holy Spirit to be faithful to my great God in the time I have been given. Matters. Anybody with me this morning? Third, that I will invest eternally I will not let the temporary things entangle me. My life is a part of, not the center of God's plan. I'm going to say that again. My life is a part of, not the center of God's plan. And if my job is to be an amuensis, I can't say that word, 
It's too many letters. For another man, and that's all I do, I'm good. If my job is to set up and tear down chairs, if my job is to paint walls, if my job is to preach the gospel, if my part is to sing, if my part is to teach kids, if my part is to be a good neighbor, which that's all of our parts, but if whatever my part is in the kingdom, I'm going to take my role and I'm going to run with it because I've been given it. I'm going to find my place in the kingdom. I will invest in eternal things. And then last, I will trust God by faith. I will trust God by faith. Even when it doesn't make sense, God will be my refuge and my strength. If you've read your Bible much, but the people that God calls out and we see him use in scripture, how often does it make sense what God asks him to do? Not much. Jeremiah's call doesn't make sense, so I'm going to travel the countryside, tell people that imminent doom and destruction is coming your way. Doesn't seem very smart. His mom and dad are like, no, Jeremiah, you're not doing that. And Jeremiah's like, God told me to. And they're like, ah, dude, we want you to be safe. And sure, I want you to come back to the house. And Jeremiah's like, no, God asked me to do that. And they said, but you're too young. He goes, I know, I told God that. And he told me I wasn't too young. I don't know what to do. You know, Peter... Like, he has a great fishing business. All of a sudden, Jesus comes and he says, come follow me. And Peter's like, done, dropping the nets. And people are like, whoa, what are you doing? That guy, we don't even know who this guy is. He's, he's talked about a lot, but I think some people don't like him too. What's this doing? What are you doing, Peter? See, see, God wants us and is asking us to trust him by faith. And when it's by faith, it means that you can't quite see what's around the corner. See, God's word is just a light into our past, not a spotlight into our future. And so I just got to keep taking every next step by faith, trusting him for what he has said, what he has asked, what he has required of me. You can see, at the end of the day, without God, we are all shipwrecked. Without Christ, we are all shipwrecked. At the bottom of the ocean, but God reached down, Romans 8.32, again, I said it during communion. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Yesterday, I was sitting in a, a dance recital. I don't know if you know this. I have all girls. And so I was sitting in a dance recital. And a little boy got up on the stage. He was probably three years old. Have anybody been to a dance recital? The little kids, so stinking cute. Like, and so this, Minnie and Mickey, they did this little dance. And like, their instructor's doing it. They don't even know what they're doing. They're just like spinning, right? And it's so cute. But I had this moment <clears throat> as I was watching it. See, I, I have four daughters. I talk about that all the time. But actually, I, have a, I, I did have a son. And we lost him at 12 weeks. You know, most people call it a miscarriage. We, we, we lost our son. It was a miscarriage, whatever. I remember seeing that little boy. And it kind of just hit me that I could have watched a son be Mickey and cute on a stage. And it wasn't like, but it hit me, and I kind of got emotional there for a second. It was kind of this moment of like, because I do have four daughters, but I, I, I had a son. And, and I do believe life happens at conception, and my son's life isn't a miscarriage, it's a life. 
because that's how I define life. That's how the Bible defines life. And I thought, as I was looking at this last night, a sermon again, I thought about that moment yesterday. I thought about this text, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son. If, if I could have, if I could have that six-year-old with me going into second grade, first whatever grade it would be, and it would be so much fun. You know, it would be great. And I can't think, like, willfully giving up. That wasn't a willful thing, you know. We don't know why. But God gave his son for us. And that's what this, that verse, if you don't hear it, he who did not spare his own son, feel that. That God made his son flesh to die for you so that your sins might be forgiven. So that you might have eternal life. So if you tell me that we say too much gospel around here, well, you can go to another church because we're going to keep saying it. He who did not spare his own son for you, for me, on the cross. He who did not spare his own son. He loved us so much that he laid down his, his infinitely precious son for us. But God gave him up for us all. So this length of love, this length of love, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? What does God have to do to convince us that he loves us, that he doesn't want to shipwreck, that he wants us to have life, that he wants us to lead, that he wants us to live for something better, that he wants to live us for something more? What else does he have to scream other than a son hung on a cross for us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not graciously give us all things? Man, woman, child in the room today, you don't have to be shipwrecked in your life. But you can have hope in Jesus Christ. You can have relationship with Jesus Christ through repenting of your sins, turning from your rebellion, placing your faith in Jesus Christ. You can have new life today. But not only new life today, by making this son, the one whom God gave on the cross for us, by making him the center of your life, you don't have to be shipwrecked ever again in circumstances. When he is the epicenter, when he is the focus, not me, not you, not anything else but him. I promise you this, bottom line, when spiritual leadership fails is when our eyes turn on ourselves. Spiritual leadership succeeds when our focus is set on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we see the Son, whom the Father did not spare, but gave him up for us all. And how will the Father not graciously give us all things if he would radically and seemingly, recklessly, to our eyes, <laughs> recklessly love us in this way? Now, see, God's love was reckless in this way. It wasn't reckless in the say. It was incredibly crafted with perfection. His love caused our God to reach down and bring us up at great cost, that which we could not bring ourselves. Our God is the one who restores. He is the one who rebuilds. He is the one who recreates. He is the one who washes. He is the one who cleanses. 
his extravagant love for us so that we might glorify him in our time, in our flesh. I said it to start, I'll say it to end. Say it to start, say it to end. Again, this is not about us. This is all about him. So we're going to sing a song. And this song is going to be a song about the extravagant love of God and maybe even more so from our perspective, his extravagant love. As we sing it, these altars are open for you. Maybe one of these points, maybe one of these I wills, you want to come to the altar and just say, I will. I, I will. God, come under your leadership. And I will be faithful to what you've asked. Or maybe for you, you never accepted the greatest gift you could ever accept, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, might you come to these altars, turn in repentance, and live in faith, trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your love and your care for us. We're so grateful that you graciously gave us all things. So this morning, Father, would you help us to respond? Maybe in this room, there are those that don't have a worthy burden, and this morning they want to commit to having a worthy burden to live for. Maybe this morning, there are those that want to commit to taking responsibility for their life. Maybe others to invest eternally or just simply to trust you, God, by faith. Maybe others to just simply have recognized the length you went to for them. And today, they are going to place their faith and trust in you. Lord, move. Help us to respond here at these altars, in our seats, to what you've said to us today. We give this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you'll stand, let's respond together.